Hey everyone, thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. A sermon about the life of a king named David and the truths we can take from it on living a meaningful life ourselves. Before it plays, I want to update you on two things. First, we have built a new website to serve as a central hub for our church. The site is creekside.me and on it you can subscribe to our newsletter, sign up for an event, donate money, and even let us know how God has used this sermon to impact you. The other thing that I want to let you know about is that our sermon videos are now available on our website. If you'd rather watch this sermon than listen to it, just visit wilsonville.church David. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I'll say, as I kind of get this thing going, that, uh, that I've done many regretful things, uh, but, uh, but the real point of the sermon is not one that I struggle with so much, uh, and it's one that I think a lot of people in our church do struggle with, and that is just this idea. Uh, as we talk about living a life of impact, living a life that's important, that's uh, big, that outlives us, that matters to other people, I think that a lot of you say, yeah, I'd do that, but I did this one thing once. I would do that, but if you knew what I had done when I was a kid or when I was a teenager or uh, what I did to my first wife or whatever, if you knew the sin that I had committed, uh, then all of this would kind of be voided. All these things that we've looked at in the life of David, my passion for God and my un. Uh, wavering desire to see him glorified if you knew you know what I have done this thing that I regret this thing that I I don't feel forgiveness from this thing that I that I wish I could do again that I wish I could go back and get rid of I mean if you knew about this thing in my life then, then you would know that I can't really live a, a life that matters and I'm not just saying this theoretically. I know there are people in front of me this morning who, who believe that God has something for them, but, but they hold this, this past sin, these past regrets over their own heads. And they think like, they really believe, I, I wish that I could make an impact, but I did this thing. I've done this thing. I have these sins that I just can't let go of. And if you've been following along in the series, you know that, that David's lived this life that seems perfect, right? I mean, he's done everything just seemingly correctly, especially when it comes to his relationship with God from the very beginning. I mean, when we meet him as a young man who is anointed by God, I mean, he's just out there faithfully serving sheep. He seems humble. He seems awesome. And then in the next door we looked at, he's killing this guy named Goliath, and he's still just a boy by most standards, and he's just so passionate about God's glory that he runs out and he fights Goliath, and then we meet him as a, as a really young man, and he's running from Saul, but, but he's unwilling to kill Saul because he doesn't want to do anything that won't glorify God. And, and you're like, yeah, those are all great, but if you knew me when I was a teenager or in my early 20s, <laughs> like, that wasn't me, you know? 
And it can leave us, I think, with all of the great Bible heroes. When we're not really paying attention, when we're just looking at kind of the, the cool stories that we tell our kids, it can leave us feeling like, well, that's great for them, but wow, they are just beyond me. And thankfully, I guess, it's a weird word to use about the story I'm about to, to share it with you, but, but thankfully we have this incident in really the middle of David's life when he's about 50 years old, he's seemingly done nothing wrong up until this point. We have this, this incident, this story where David does things that, that most of us cannot imagine doing. I can't even imagine doing it. And, uh, and yet, and this is, what, this is the, the whole point of the, the sermon right here, is, is that while this story hurts his legacy... It does not destroy his legacy. And that is because of the decision that we will see at the end. It's his response to these things that he does and God's convicting of him. It's his response that allows him to continue to have an incredible life of impact. And we'll see that at the end. But let me begin. Second Samuel, we're jumping forward a whole book. Everything else we've looked at has been in First Samuel. But Second Samuel 11, 1 and this is the story, for those of you who have already guessed, of David and Bathsheba. That's how we refer to this story. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting story because I, I, for me, maybe you're not this way, but I know the story. Oh yeah, David did something bad, I remember. But the details in this story are so interesting and, and really paint David in a worse light and out of that, and I'm sorry, David, if you can hear me, but, um, but, but make me more hopeful about my life and the life that I'm living. Second Samuel 11.1, 1. in the spring, at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rahab, Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now there's some debate here, and we're going to return to this debate in just a minute, but there's some debate on whether this is simply an introductory verse that sets it all up, or whether this is actually uh, some background information, some reasoning for why David eventually has the problem that we'll read in just a few minutes here, and, and I'll come back to that. But the thing that I, I just want you uh, to kind of pay attention to here is that David's army is doing perfectly fine without him. And, and I'll return to that too. But they're off winning battles, winning wars, doing great things, all for the glory of God. It's as if they don't need David at all. And then in 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 3, we read this. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So here's David out on his roof, hanging out, sees a woman, she's naked, and he finds out about her. And she is the daughter of Eliam, who just, this is, this is going to make what happens next just so much worse feeling and seeming. He's one of David's bodyguards. Like, this is a guy that, that is protecting David with his very life. That's how he serves in the military. And so it's his daughter, and it's the wife of this guy named Uriah, who was one of Israel's nobility. He, 
His name means Yahweh is my light. And if you uh, look at, uh, very deeply into Jewish culture, even today it seems uh, the name of a person in a lot of ways, especially when it gets recorded biblically, it symbolizes something about them. And here Uriah uh, has the name Yahweh is my light. And it seems to be true for him that he is letting Yahweh light his path and guide his decisions making it even crazier. He is listed, as one author refers to them, as one of the elite 30. I really like that. It's like SEAL Team 6. I mean, he's like a big deal. He's like, it's actually 37, which elite 37 doesn't sound nearly as cool as elite 30, but he's like one of the Navy SEALs of the Israelite army. I mean, he's one of the guys that's most trusted and most battle tested and highest ranked. I mean, he is one of the guys out there risking his life, you know, in, in greater, more profound ways than, than other guys in the Israelite army. In David's army, by the way, the army that David is the commander of. And so, I mean, the easy, simple thing that you would expect is for David to go, oh, okay, and then move on with his life, right? I mean, this guy rushed to kill a giant because he could not handle God not being glorified. He refused to kill Saul, really ruining much of his own life, I mean, in some ways, because he had to keep running and keep hiding in caves. He refuses to do that because of his love and passion for God. I mean, it's, it's just so clear what David would do, right? He's just going to say, oh, well, I shouldn't have lusted. Better go say a prayer. And he doesn't. In 2 Samuel eleven four, then David sent messengers to her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly unclean, uncleanness. Then she went back home. I mean, David commits adultery with a woman who is perhaps religiously unclean. Leviticus 15.24 talks about that. He has already uh, quite clearly broken two commandments out of the ten commandments and perhaps a third commandment or a third uh, law of the Jewish people by, by sleeping with her when she was impure. And it's just hard. It really is. Like, if it, you could just be like, well, we all sin, and that's a really simple answer, right? Like, it's easy to chalk that up. I think that's how we chalk it up to, uh, to people when we tell this story simply and quickly. You know, oh, even David sinned. He slept with Bathsheba, and that's kind of how we, we go on our way. But, but, but for me, uh, like, why? You know, like, why did this happen? Because I don't think I would have done it but I wouldn't have run out to face a giant, you know? And so what happened here? And I don't think we can answer that perfectly, but uh, we can at least take a couple of shots. And the first thing is that David had become spiritually lazy. And I mentioned that that, that first verse uh, is sometimes used as kind of foundation for the story that follows. And a lot of uh, people that write on this passage of scripture that writes books about 2 Samuel, they would point to the fact that David should have been at war with them. Now that's a debatable topic and so you can't take that as gold, but it makes some sense given the language of that first verse, doesn't it? I mean, it says, look, it's spring, this is when kings go off to fight and David is, the actual literal language, he is sitting. 
He's just not doing anything. He's hanging out. He's not doing what he had done. And, and if you go, remember, when he fought Goliath, I mean, this was a man that just was like, I can't let the enemies of God continue to defile the glory of God. I can't handle that. And now, David's king of the land. Some years have passed. He's rich. He's wealthy. Uh, also going against the will of God. He has married a bunch of women, which is explicitly uh, spoken against by God in the Old Testament for the king of Israel. Uh, I mean, he's, he's taken some steps, it seems, to like say, uh, or not to say, but, but where we see that maybe, just maybe, David has become spiritually lazy. And I mentioned earlier that, that the army is having some success and I know if you're anything like me that it is easy when things are good to not care much about the things of God it's like well God is taking care of me things are okay what do I need to think about God for and we know this, I mean, we see this on a national level often, we see this uh, and even in our personal lives, when things go bad, it's easy for us to, to quickly return to God and say, God, I need you, and I want to live for you, and I'm sorry, I haven't lived for you, and David's sitting on his throne, hanging out, armies are winning, he's rich, the nation has been elevated far beyond where it ever been before as a country, and it seems that maybe David just becomes spiritually lazy. And so one option, and I think it's really important for us to think about this option, that's why I'm giving it to you even though we don't know for certain. One option is that he becomes spiritually lazy and it allows for him to do things that I, I think he, he would have said, I never could do that. And it's a great warning for you and I. Because as soon as we say, well, I'm spiritually good and things are going really well for me, I'm invincible. Look what I've done for God. As soon as that happens, I mean, this is just true, right? Whether it was the reason for David's fall or not, it's just true. As soon as that happens, we can do things that we never thought we could do. Maybe on the other side of it, though, David rationalized it. I can totally feel this and sense this and I, I just know that this is a thing for a lot of people and uh, I just, I'm imagining at this point so you have to forgive me but I just imagined that David did not think, well I'll have her come over so I can sleep with her and commit adultery and you know defile the great family of Uriah, um, this man who's off fighting battles, uh, who's part of my SEAL Team 6. I mean I can't imagine, that. I just can imagine that David says something like, she's cute, we'll just have a drink. That's what I imagine David saying. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> Even though it's imaginary, I'm pretty sure I'm right. Because we all know that, that generally when we do things that we regret terribly later, it's not from here to way over there, right? It's like, yeah, I'll just get a little closer to doing what I know I shouldn't do. I'm pretty sure David said, we'll just have a conversation. She looks nice. You know, it looks like somebody I could talk to about these battles that are going on in the world. 
And so maybe David's spiritually lazy, but maybe this begins because David is rationalizing the first step towards an incredible sin that he never thought he he would commit, that he would do, that he could give into, that he would fall from. And I think there's a great warning here too. I'm sure that some of you are taking little baby steps towards doing things that you know are absolutely terrible and wrong. And you say, well, I'll never, I will never do that. But if you take the first step, you might take the second step. You might end up doing something that's terribly wrong. I've said this before, and it makes me sound like a terrible person, but it's absolutely true. I would have said to you before college, I could never kill somebody. I could never kill somebody. And then I got involved in this romantic relationship that caused me to take little steps away from what I knew was morally good. And this doesn't end with I killed somebody, by the way. Some of you are looking at me like, whoa, this is serious. Better not miss church. (laughs) But I mean, I, I, I learned to hate somebody. I allowed for myself to hate somebody so much that I I at least hoped they wouldn't exist. And I know what the next step is in that, right? The next step in hoping somebody won't exist is causing them to not exist, murder. And I thank God that he worked and stopped it and prevented me from taking more steps. But I went and I know this firsthand, firsthand, that if we take these little steps, eventually we could see ourselves doing things that we never thought we could possibly do. And I'm guessing that that's part of this story. And and then this other thing, and and, and maybe this is true, and I don't like this one as much because it scares me more. But maybe David just out of nowhere was tempted by a woman uh, bathing on a roof, and, and he just gave in. Maybe he just out of nowhere said, look, I'll just do this. I just... I was having a rough day and I'm going to sin. I'm going to give in. I'm going to do something I know I shouldn't do. And there was no buildup. And maybe he wasn't being spiritually lazy. Maybe he was praying up on the roof. But he saw the woman and he just gave in and he, he committed adultery and he did this thing that was absolutely terrible. I mean, the Bible, the Bible shows us that, that Satan and Satan's demons are fighting against us in these ways. In 1 Peter, it talks about how our spiritual lives are a battle they're a war uh, that satan is fighting against us and in first peter 5 8 it says be alert and of sober mind your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and i'll tell you there's there's a warning in, in being spiritually lazy and there's a warning in not rationalizing and there's a i think a warning in this story that says like look you can never let your guard down because if you do look look what you can do And we haven't even seen the end of what David can do yet because David gets worse and worse in his decision making in this story. And so I would tell you, I mean, I just think that that for each and every one of us, this is just so radically important. If you're being spiritual lazy, you might do things you never thought were possible. If you're rationalizing little behavior that you know is wrong, then you might end up doing things that you never thought you could possibly do. And if you let your guard down, even if you're spiritually on a high right now and you're praying every day and you're excited about Jesus, if you just let your guard down for one minute, then you might end up doing things that you never wanted to do, that you never thought you could possibly do. And if you do, it'll hurt your legacy. It'll hurt your impact for sure. Now with most of our sins, 
The Bible talks about how we sin in the dark, but it will be found out in the light. And I think most of us, when we do things that we eventually regret, we think we'll get away with it. It won't be that big a deal. I'll be able to sweep it under the rug. And I'm sure David felt just that. I mean, the, the, the language here is so matter of fact that it makes David look worse. Sees a woman bathing, says, bring her to my room, sleeps with her, sends her home. Done. Except for 2 Samuel eleven five. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And now David has to cover it up. And we know this, this is like part of our phraseology in America. The cover up is worse than the crime, right? I mean, uh, Watergate started as a simple robbery and, and look what it became and And we know this is true in our lives, that the cover-up often, and I would even say most often in in the experiences of my life, the cover-up becomes worse than the crime, and David launches into this incredible cover-up effort that, that, that seems unimaginable when you think about the life that he's lived. In 2 Samuel 11, 6 through 9, we read, so David sent this word to Joab, who's like the commander of his army, the the head honcho. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to David. Send him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So the first thing David does is he, he brings Uriah back from the battlefield. He makes this garbage excuse, especially considering that he's not out there fighting. Hey, how are things going down there? I'd be like, wait, you made me walk all these miles to find out how things are going? This is how I would just been mad. I mean, this is just frustrating because this isn't like you get on a plane, right? I mean, you know that planes weren't invented yet. I mean, this is a long, long walk to get back and you show up and think, man, this must be urgent. There must be another battle I need to go to. And David's like, how you doing? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And, th- and then he says, like, hey, go wash your feet, which a lot of people believe is an idiom for sleeping with his wife. He, so that's super weird if that's true. Like, hey, go sleep with your wife. Welcome home. Like, this is uncomfortable. We don't know each other that well, you know. I mean, that's really weird. But, but that's the goal. That's his attempt here is, is, like, hey, if I can get him to sleep with his wife, then it looks like he impregnated her. I'm off the hook. I can go on my merry way. That'll be the end of it. Fascinatingly enough, in Deuteronomy 23.10, a lot of people think that that verse says that soldiers, while they're active in duty, should not have marital relations with their wives. And Uriah is obedient to that idea. And we'll see in a minute, he, he just can't fathom the idea of hanging out with his wife, living a normal life. While people are out there fighting for the glory of God, he becomes very David-like in this story. And so instead of going home to his wife, he sleeps at the entrance to the palace with the master servants, probably with the bodyguards. There's some irony in this, some really tragic irony. David's trying to cover up committing adultery with this man's wife, and he's like, well, if I'm not out there fighting a battle, I'll at least stay here and protect the king. I mean, consider that for a moment. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? And so the next day, We see this, David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, 
The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. I mean, Uriah says the stuff that, that has set David apart his whole life, right? I mean, this is what's made David such an incredible man. I will not sit around and let God be dishonored. So Uriah says, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife. I'm not going to hang out and live like a civilian when I know. And, and the biggest part here to me is the ark, which was this symbol of God and really the place of God's presence for the Jewish people. I mean, they carried it around to their battles because in some way they believed and in some way it seemed real that as long as it was going, then God was going and they were winning battles. I mean, I can't sleep in a house while God's presence is out in a tent somewhere. I mean, that should have been so convicting to David, I think. Especially if we take the spiritually lazy side, you know, and say, wow, he's just sitting around when he should have been off fighting a battle. And Uriah shows up and, and maybe, maybe his goal is to convict David. I like him even better if it is. Like, oh, I could never sit at home, hang out while this is going on. Well, you'd think at this point David would say, you're right, Uriah, what a man of honor. I can't believe what I did. I impregnated your wife. I mean, something would change, but no, that's not what David does. Then David said to him in 2 Samuel eleven twelve through 13, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And notice this. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. I mean, David sinks lower here, right? Well, if you're not gonna uh, do what I need you to do to cover this thing up, well, I'll get you drunk and hope that that works. And we know from the New Testament more specifically that being drunk is something that goes against uh, the will of God that is disobedient to God. We see these things in the Old Testament that show us that being drunk is stupid. It uh, doesn't quite as clearly call it sin, something uh, that is specifically spoken against in the Old Testament. But we see like, hey, you're foolish to be drunk. And we see these incidences where people get drunk and it leads to only bad things. And David is like, like, well, I'm gonna make him. I'm gonna make him do something that he knows he shouldn't do. I'm gonna. I'm gonna cause him to be dishonoring to God. I'll just get him drunk. That's so sad. I mean, David wanted nothing more than than God's glory. And now. His new goal is to cover his own sin by causing somebody else to not glorify God. And it doesn't work. And so in 2 Samuel eleven fourteen through 17, we read, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. I mean, David murders him. That's, 
that's exactly what it's called in the next chapter. I mean, uh, we could say, well, it wasn't quite murder. He just hired a hitman or whatever. But I mean, Second Samuel 12, I mean, it's pretty outright. Like, he killed Uriah. That's what he did. It's an incredible fall, isn't it? To go from, I want God's glory, I want God's glory, I want God's glory. To murdering somebody. And it's one that I think we can all take. And so interesting to me about this is, is that we all have these moments, right? We all have moments we look back on and think, I, I, just, I can't believe that I did that. Some of you, I think, are, are in those moments probably now. And, and by moments, I don't mean single moments. This isn't a, a single moment for David. This takes place over days. And for some of you, you're living a life over months maybe or years where, where if you could just get outside of yourself for a minute or, or, or hopefully this isn't the case, but in years when you look back, you'll say, I never imagined that I could do that because it was so bad. I mean, we all have moments or we're all living moments where we have done things that are so regrettable that we don't talk about them, that we can't share them with others. And, and when we're talking about our sins, those are the ones we conveniently leave out, you know, if we ever talk about those things. We don't talk about those ones because they're too bad, they're too strong. And that's David. And, and just even making it worse than 2 Samuel eleven eighteen through 26. After Uriah is killed, we see this just cold, callous attitude. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish saying... When you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may, may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jurabesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. What? Your men have died. I mean, do you remember what he said when he fought Goliath? The battle, there's not one, is not won by sword and shield. The battle is the Lord's. And he's running at Goliath and he's saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to chop off your head and then we're going to destroy you. And now he's like, yeah, some die, some live. It's just a part of war. He's so callous to it. And I think some of you, and this scares me, are so callous to your sin. It's just a part of my life. And you're so callous to the consequences of your sin. Eh, 
I know that it's ruining and hurting my impact. I know that it's hurting my family. I know that it's hurting those around me. But ah, not that big a deal. Then in 2 Samuel 11, 26 through 27, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. That makes it so much worse to me. She makes it seem like she's just caught up in this king just using his power and then killing her husband. She mourns for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Seems like it ends fine, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And this is the reality. Even if you cover things up perfectly, which David definitely did not do here. Even if you cover it all up perfectly. When you are disobedient to God. When you don't have in mind his honor and his glory. When you do things that dishonor him. It displeases him. And some of you are so callous to that. And I hope that this morning, reading the story of David here, it it just, it causes you to not be callous about it anymore. I mean, some of you are hurting other people's lives. Some of you are hurting your own life. Because you're choosing to do things that are not obedient to God. And it displeases God. so much in this chapter but it's not even the point this, I haven't even got to the point that I want to get to this morning because the point really falls in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen that we'll read in a second but I mean just, just consider with me now if, if you really want to live a life of impact then you can't become spiritually lazy and if you really want to live a life of impact then you can't justify small steps of sin and if you really want to live a life of impact then, then you can't let your guard down because Satan might attack you. And if you really want to live a life of impact, then, then you can't try to cover up your sins and, and you can't be callous about the, the consequences, the negative consequences that those sins have. You can't. And what we know from the life of David is that this event is a turning point. And you can look at almost the entire first half of David's life as an ascent And from this moment on, it's really this descent. Not in his unwillingness to glorify God, but in just the circumstances. Because there are so many negative consequences to this action. There's an incredible fallout. And we'll look at some of that next week and how David deals with that. There is no hiding this reality. Our sins will negatively impact our ability to impact the world. But it doesn't have to negate our impact. Because this isn't the end of the story for David. In fact, David lives a lot of years after this and does a lot of great things that still impact us today, like write psalms that reflect on this incident in his life that we can turn to in incidents where we have done things that that are just so regrettable. But I really believe 
that if David doesn't make the decision that he makes in 2 Samuel 12, 13, then this would have impacted, this would have ended the incredible impact that he had in his life. It wouldn't have just hurt it. It wouldn't have just lessened it. I think it would have ended it. In 2 Samuel 1 through 12, this prophet named Nathan shows up to David. And he tells this uh, long, really, parable where he says there was this man who had this one sheep and he raised the sheep up and he fed it as his own child and he loved it as his daughter. And there was this other man of power and this other man had lots of sheep and, and he needed a sheep for a visitor and so he went to the one guy with the one sheep and he took it from him and he used it. And this just fires David up. Like, are you, are you serious? Like, this is, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. I mean, this man, in fact, this is what David says, this man must be put to death. And then Nathan in, in this line that's so incredible in its conviction and how it convicts David. And even God has used it to convict me at times in my life. He looks at David and he says, you are that man. And Nathan says, hey, here's what's going to happen. First, he says, you need to understand this. Like, God has blessed you so much. God, God's blessed you so much. And if you wanted more, God would have given you more. And you took from Uriah, his wife and his life. This is the deciding moment for David on whether he's just going to hurt his impact or end it, in my opinion. Because David is powerful. He could have had Nathan put to death. He could have gone on like nothing had ever happened. And this, for most in modern American Christianity, is the response when we are confronted with our sin. We're confronted through the Bible. We're confronted through a sermon. We're confronted by a friend that says, look, I see what's happening this is not right, and we rationalize it, we sweep it under the rug, we pretend it's not that bad, we get mad at people and say, how dare you, we leave churches, we just move on and say, I'm not going to listen to that, I don't have to listen to you, God just wants me to be happy, I'm going to do my thing. And I believe with all my heart, if David would have said, shut up, you have no power here. I'm the king. Go away. You're no longer the prophet in this land. Then that would have ended the legacy of David. And maybe we wouldn't have his stories written down for us. And maybe we wouldn't have some of the incredible psalms. And maybe we wouldn't be here today saying, look, despite his incredible sin, he still lived a life of impact. We just say, wow, it's too bad that king didn't turn out to be so good. But instead, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, we read this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And instead of saying, God, how dare you punish me so strictly and so cruelly? God says, hey, I'm actually going to kill the child that is born in this relationship. Instead of saying, God, how dare you? That's unfair. I don't like you anymore. I'm not going to serve a God that does those things. He says, I'll pray that that doesn't happen. But I'm going to start to live for you again. 
And after this moment, we see David again make incredible decisions that just seem so illogical because he wants to bring God glory. He wants to worship God with his life. And it's the reason that while this event hurts David's legacy, it does not end it. And there are many of you who come here today in the midst of sin, who are considering sin, who have done things that are wrong and you know it. And maybe this morning as I talk about David's sin, you are being confronted with your sin and you have a choice to make. You can look at God and say, I have sinned and I will move on. Or you can say, ah, it's not that bad. And what you decide about your sin and moving on from your sin will determine whether or not your sin will end your impact or just hurt your impact. David admits it. He repents, which means to go the other direction. He begins to live for God again. In 1 Kings 15, 5, in fact, this is what we read. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's command, commands all the days of his life, dash, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And here's my hope for you this morning, that the sin that is in your life will be the exception and not the rule. But you must make a decision to look at God and say, I have done what is wrong, I have sinned against you, and I will move past it. Now here's the great news for those of you that have, and this is what I think is so important for some of you in our church. You don't have to hold it over your head anymore. I trust that the things that you have done wrong, that you regret terribly, I trust that they have had bad consequences. But what you don't find in this story, after the consequences, is God saying, I could never use you again. I could never love you again. I could never think of you in, in good terms again. I mean, the New Testament is ripe with language that suggests that David is one of the most incredible men ever to live. Jesus is known as the son of David. David is known as, as a man after God's own heart. And so I hope, I hope this morning that this will fall in, in really three, three different places. I hope that for those of you who are just living life right now, that you would not let your guards down, that you would not be spiritually lazy, that you would not rationalize, because I don't want to see you have this epic fall because it will hurt your legacy, it will hurt your impact, it will have negative consequences. Sin always does. I think that's why God made sin sinful, because it has negative consequences. There's not one thing that God tells me not to do, that after I do it, I say, wow, that worked out so much better. <laughs> it just never happened to me. And for some of you, you're in the midst of sin and you're not having an impact. Why? Because of that sin. And I hope that you will repent. I hope that you'll admit and repent. I wrote it like this. So that sin won't prevent your impact. And then for others of you who have admitted and repented, you've gone the other direction. Man, stop holding it over your own head. We believe in a God who came from heaven to earth, who looked at us in the midst of our terrible sins, who looked at all that we have done wrong, even the worst things, and said, even though you've done all of that, I will come and I will die for you. I will allow for my body to be broken and I will pour out my blood so that you might have forgiveness for that. And the last thing that you need to do is hold it over your own head. 
because it has been paid for already. Do not let sin end your impact. Let me pray for you. Lord, I know uh, I'm most passionate about people in our church who just are such guilty people, Lord. Not, not guilty in that they keep doing things wrong necessarily, but guilty in that they seem to want to hold their sins over themselves. And I pray, God, that they would remember the forgiveness that they have in you. And, and for those, God, who don't have forgiveness in you because they haven't given their lives to you, I pray that they would give their lives to you, God, because I, I, it's the only way to be forgiven for these things that we desperately want forgiveness for. And Jesus, I pray for those who are, are flirting with sin, God. I pray that they would just stop it. They would stop it. And they would not rationalize, God, but they would stop. And I pray, God, for those who are in front of me this morning that are just sinning and they're callous about it. And yeah, they try to cover it up. They don't let people know what they're looking at on their computers. They don't let people know how they're living their lives, God. I pray that you'd look at them, Lord, and you'd convict them like you did David. And they would look at you and say, I have sinned. And they would leave that sin behind, God. Lord, sin will ruin our impact. And I don't want that for anybody in this church. I don't want that for our church corporately, God. Let us be a church that is spiritually strong and spiritually alert. And let us be a church that moves past our sins quickly, God. And let us be a church that always remembers what an incredible gift we have in the cross that offers us peace and forgiveness and grace and mercy. I pray these things in your name. Amen.